But Titus chapter 2, starting at verse 11, says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men. Somebody say, that's me. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's not two, that's one. The great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We are completing our series today that's titled Lessons from Grace. And we have considered a few different areas that are important for us to understand if we are going to live the way that grace teaches us to live. By denying ungodliness and worldly lusts and living soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. Just to recap, there are, like, like any series, there are so many areas that you could cover, but we have taken the time in this series so far to cover such things as the importance of overcoming our flesh, being able to overcome our, our sinful nature, also considering the importance of our prayer lives as a part of that process, of the need for us to walk in the Spirit, and to recognize how desperately we need the Word of God in our lives. That is almost, a, it's, it's very much the focal point of our church, is to have the Word of God in our hearts and in our lives. We need the Word of God. We need it preached. We need it taught. We need it studied. And more than anything else, we need it applied. If it's not applied, it's not going to do what God has purposed it to do. We spoke about the importance of being a part of the family of God of understanding the significance and the power that there is in being in this body of believers that we are so blessed to be a part of. Love this family of God. But it's not just in the areas that we consider positive or pleasant, such as encouragement or fellowship or strength, but also in realizing that our imperfections help God to fashion us the way that he wants us to be. Amen. So when you thank God for your brothers and sisters, Thank him for all the bits, the bits we love and the bits that challenge us because God has positioned them all. And it is always worth recognizing from our text that we need all of the components of verse 12 if we are going to be successful in our purpose. If we, by the grace of God and the power of his spirit, are going to live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world, we cannot do that without denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. Amen. There's a similar principle found in James chapter 4 and verses 6 through 8. It says, But he giveth more grace. Thank you, God, for your grace. Wherefore he saith, God resists the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. That's not talking about antibacterial solution. That's talking about our actions. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. So often in services and in exciting preaching, the central statement of that passage is extracted by itself. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And that's the part that we remember, and that part is most definitely true. But it is only effective when it is done together with the other instructions in the same passage. We need to humble ourselves. God resists the proud. I don't want God to resist me. There's enough things in this world that come against us and resist us. I don't want God to be resisting me. So we need to humble ourselves. We need to submit to the devil. 
Then we resist the devil. We draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. It is a package. Amen. And to try and resist the devil in our own strength is pretty well guaranteed to fail. You know, the devil will let you resist him in your own strength sometimes to set you up in a false sense of security thinking, I can take care of this. And just when you think you've got it and you're doing okay without praying, he'll hit you when you're not looking. Amen. We need to do it in the strength and the power of God. Amen. And as James said, if I first submit myself to God, then I am no longer operating in my own authority, but I'm under the authority of God. And with that in mind today, I want to cover another area that is very important in our lives, and that is the subject of authority. Authority. The moment we hear that word, there is something in our sinful natures that instantly begins to feel resistance. Since the very beginning, since Adam and Eve fell, there has been something in sinful nature that does not want anybody to tell us what to do. There's, there's just something about humanity that we don't like. Ultimately, the cause of sin was Adam and Eve choosing not to do what they were told. Even in their sinless perfection, there was something in them that chose to decide to follow their own will rather than the instruction of God. And if you, you consider humanity, that is, at a very simple level, the source of all the trouble in the world. Amen. Matthew 28 and 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Amen. If you spend the time thinking about that verse, you'll understand it's a powerful statement of the oneness of God. Now, there are two main Greek words that the New Testament was written in from which we get the English words authority and power. And I've got those two words on a slide. The first one is exousia. Now, we, Brother, Brother Woodward ministered about this a couple of weeks ago when he talked about the, the power dynamic in, in, a, in a marital relationship and between men and ladies. But exousia means authority. It means the right to exercise power, to expect obedience, particularly delegated authority or authority that is given to somebody from a higher authority. This word sometimes is translated as authority, sometimes it's translated as power. But the word dunamis, this word is translated as power, never as authority. And this word speaks of the ability or the power to do something. And this idea or this understanding is reflected in the fact that this word is often translated as miracles and mighty works. It's, it's, there is an action that is taking place. The two words are closely related, but they're, they're not the same. And so for this lesson this morning, I want to consider authority from the perspective of being power that is delegated or given to someone. From our scripture in Matthew, we read that all power and so logically all authority belongs to Jesus there is no one higher there is no one greater and as believers Jesus must be the highest authority in our lives he is not willing to share his throne he is not willing to share his place in our lives he's either our God or he's not amen Any other form of authority must not oppose his authority or it creates an imbalance, it creates a conflict. And even though 
Jesus is the highest power and authority, there are several areas of authority that the Word of God places in our lives that when we understand them, they cannot be excluded from being a part of us being under His authority. Amen. We like to think that it's just me and God and nobody else has an opinion, but that doesn't really line up with the Scripture. And these include government authority, uh, employer authority. Uh, Scripture would talk about masters and servants, but we draw that parallel with employers and employees. Church authority and marriage and family authority. These are all areas that are given to us from the Word of God. So let's, we're going to go through quite a few scriptures to consider what the Lord has to say about these areas. Let's start with everybody in Australia's favorite, government authority. Australians have a built-in anti-authority mindset that we need to be very aware of. 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 1, says, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Bring people's needs before the Lord, intercede for people for the Lord, and give thanks for all men. And verse 2 says, For kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Amen. Romans chapter 13, starting at verse 1, says, Let every soul, not most, but every soul, be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resists the power, resists the ordinance of God or the the structure of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. Or in other words, not just because you're scared, but to do the right thing. For this, for, for this cause pay ye tribute also. You can understand that as tax. For they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to them all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. The word ministers here is not talking about ministers in the church context that we would often think of automatically, but it's talking about people who serve in positions of authority, such as government officials. And if you uh, think about our government structure in, in state government and federal government. We have a minister for health, we have a minister for education, minister for finance, and so on. The idea is that they are servants in those departments. Now, we all understand that how that's applied varies, but that is the principle. That is the principle. Amen. First Peter chapter 2, and we'll, we'll summarize these passages in just a moment, but First Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. So 
When it comes to the authority of civil rulers or governments, as believers, there's quite a list there of things that Scripture instructs us to do. The first thing is to pray for them. When was the last time you prayed for the government? I know some of you probably do. I, when I thought about that, I thought, you know, it's been a while. If we compare how long it's been since we complained about the government with how long it's been since we prayed for our government, it'd be interesting to compare that parallel. Might find it slightly more effective to pray more and complain less. Just saying. Those prayers we are instructed to pray is that we will hopefully be able to lead a quiet and peaceable life. Amen. We are to be subject to their authority. That's what the Bible says. We are to do what we are told. And again, our flesh instantly says, but what about? But that's what the Bible says. We are not to resist their authority. It's interesting we are told to be subject and we are told not to resist. I would say this as believers, and you may have a different opinion, and I'm not going to die in a ditch about this, but I think Christians apostolics need to be very careful becoming involved in political action. I won't go and outright say it's wrong to be involved in protests, but I would say you need to be extremely careful. You need to take the time to examine your motives. You need to take the time to examine who it is that you're joining with because when you join a protest, you become one of that mob and you may agree on some things, but you don't agree with everything. You may get caught up in something that was not in your original intention. We need to be realize that we probably have more power in praying than we do in demonstrating. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong. Don't, don't take it that way. I am saying you need to consider that with a great deal of caution of what we get involved in. Sometimes we think our actions are more powerful than our prayers, and that's a problem right there to start with when you think about that our prayers are actually the most powerful thing. We are to submit ourselves to every ordinance or rule that government makes. We are to pay our dues, your taxes, your rates, your bills, all those things we love to get in our letterbox and our inbox. And we are to do these things not just to avoid consequences, but to have a clear conscience before God. Now, these are the things that God requires of us. He requires that we do these things. Now... When the Bible says that the powers that be are ordained by God, it does not mean that God has a preference for one political party over another or that the person who happens to be in government leadership at the moment is God's man and his favorite. That's not what it's talking about. People get all tangled up trying to mix God and politics. And, but what it's saying is that the, there is a principle there that human government is God's idea. The idea of leadership and human government is God's idea. Now, you and I know that even the very best systems of government have flaws and certainly could be improved, and we could, we could all talk and complain about that for days. We also know that many of the things that governments or government leaders do are not endorsed by God, but he allows those governments to be put in place, and at least to a certain point, which we'll touch on in a minute, he expects us to submit ourselves to them. God doesn't vote Labor. He doesn't vote Liberal. I can promise you he doesn't vote Green. (laughs) But the system of structure and leadership is a God concept. Like many things that God has put in man's hands, man is fantastic at messing them up. 
But the idea that the powers that be are of God is that he puts these things in place that if we do them his way, they work. Amen. And that we automatically react and say, but I don't agree with that decision. I don't want to wear a mask to church on Sunday morning. Or this person or this party is corrupt. Or I pay far too much tax. Generally speaking, if you're paying too much tax, you're earning too much money. So don't complain too much. Or they say, I was not treated fairly. This happened and this happened. There will always be those situations. But it's always interesting when we come back to the Word of God to notice that in just about all of the teaching on authority in the Scripture, the emphasis is on our response to authority, not based on authority's performance. But what does God expect me to do? Amen. Now, there will always be problems with government. The front page of every single day's newspaper has normally got something to do with what the government's doing, right, wrong, or otherwise. If you, you know... If you go to the Premier's Facebook page and read the comments, I hope he doesn't read all those things. It would be a bad day. But everybody has an opinion. you know, and, and that's okay. You're allowed to have that opinion. But could you imagine, can you imagine a society that doesn't have laws? A society without any legal system. Can you imagine trying to back out of your driveway and travel across town if there wasn't a single road rule? No speed limits. No traffic lights. Doesn't matter what side you drive on. No giving way. However fast you like, whatever direction you like, it would be terrifying to drive. You know, what do I do? Whatever you want. That's what everybody else is doing. And so the reality is we're all grateful for laws. The problem is we want to write them ourselves. We're grateful for the law, but we just, we like editing rights. Happy for the structure, but there's a couple of suggestions I'd like to make. That, that's really what it comes down to. So we, we have to always remember that all authority comes under the authority of God. So if a government requires of us something that is in opposition or contradiction to the word of God, then we obey God first. That's, that's the, the little text at the bottom. God wants us to obey the government, to submit to the government until it contradicts his word. Amen. If obeying a human authority means disobeying his divine authority, then we are justified to refuse the instruction of the human authority. But I would also add to that statement, we need to be careful that we do not find a scripture that fits our preference and use it to disobey authority. I've seen some creative interpretation of scripture for people to do what they want to do, not what they're told to do. Now, we live in a nation where we can actually have a say in who is in leadership. It is not a perfect system, but it is a privilege that is not enjoyed everywhere in the world or even throughout history. And you have to remember that when the Apostle Paul was writing these instructions to us in his epistles, he was living in a world that was under the rule of the Roman Empire. And in that corrupt system, he wrote to us, submit yourselves, do what they ask you to do. The Roman Empire had taken over other countries by force. They were not well known for being moral, for being kind, for being fair or being merciful. You did not have much in the way of an appeal. You did what you were told or there were consequences. And we would say that it was a terrible system. We would say, thank you, Lord, for the system we live in. 
But Paul said, we still submit to those authorities. We need to think about that. Many of the moral concerns that we have about our society today were very much present in the Roman Empire. If you read history, they were famous for their immorality, for their wickedness, their gross ungodliness. As Brother Woodward's been teaching us on Wednesday nights, the first century church faced many of the same moral challenges that the church faces today. Amen. And yet, Paul said, you need to submit and you need to obey. Amen. You know, it's when you teach a subject like this, you can almost feel the humanity in the room. <laughs> We're all sitting there smiling, but you can almost feel that, that, that resistance that's in all of our spirits, mine included. The Jews did not like being under anybody's authority. The Jews were very proud people who were looking for a Messiah who would throw out the Romans. That's what they wanted. Instead, they got a Messiah who told them to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Amen. So that's government authority. Let's talk about employer authority. Masters and servants is the biblical context. But Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 5. So servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Approach your boss in a manner you would approach the Lord. Not with eye service as men pleases or just when they're around saying the right thing. There's always that person. But as the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And you masters do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. Colossians 3 and 22. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleases, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. Next chapter, Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. There's many of these verses, but just a couple more. Titus 2 and 9. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again. Don't back chat. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward or the cruel or the unkind, the unpleasant. Again, there's that, there's that feeling inside of us. But you don't know my boss. You don't know the people I work with. We've all had them. There is instruction for masters here, for employers, supervisors to do the right thing, to be fair, to pay properly, etc. But again, for us, we see an obligation to work hard, to do what is right, to be honest, even when they're not around, not just when the boss is watching, even when they are not nice to us because we do it as unto the Lord. Amen. And if you read on in First Peter, it's not in the slides, but it's interesting to note that in, as it goes on from, in verse 18, it says, servants be subject. Then it goes on and it says in verse 20, for what glory is it if you are buffeted for your own faults? If, if you take it patiently because you did the wrong thing, there's nothing special about that. He said, but if you do well and suffer for it and you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. That's, that doesn't sit with our natural thinking. If 
I'm mistreated on the job, I'm going to have my, I'm going to give, I'm going to talk to that boss and I'm going to ring the union and I'm going to, but the Lord said, if you do the right thing and you suffer for it and you take it with patience, God approves that. Now he's not saying you have to stay in a terrible job till you die. That's not what he's saying, but he's talking about the attitude and the spirit of our hearts. Now in today's environment, people change jobs. The the law grants us certain rights. There are expectations that are placed on the employer and we are blessed to be in such an environment. It's not perfect. It never will be. But it's still better than a lot of history was. And a lot of the world still is. There are places in this world where the idea of going to the boss and complaining is fantasy. Amen. So we need to be careful that although we are thankful for those things, we approach them with a godly attitude. Because the principles and attitudes that are required of us from Scripture do not change. I would always encourage you, if you, ever, if you leave a job, always do your very best to leave well. Don't blow things up and burn bridges. Leave well. You never know when you may need to go back. You never know when a new former or possible boss might ring a previous employee to get a character witness. And you just dropped a bomb in that place before you left. And, you know, that, that's wise. It's also, you see, how we work on the job is a part of our testimony that we are the children of God. When people know, and many of you have experienced this in the workplace and at school as well, when people know that you are a Christian, they watch what you do. Sometimes because they want to try and catch you out doing the wrong thing as they see you're not really a Christian. But other times, they're watching you to see if you are the real deal. And brothers and sisters, we need to be the real deal. We need to be the real deal on the job. Amen. Let's talk about church authority. Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 11. <clears throat> and he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting or the completing or the making whole of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, that saints could grow, become mature, minister themselves and build up the body of Christ. New Testament church clearly shows us that there were leaders and even a leadership structure of sorts in the church. When you read the book of Acts, you will see that the apostles selected and ordained people for various tasks such as the deacons in Acts chapter 6, there were people that were had delegated authority to perform certain tasks, duties, and ministries. You'll see in chapter 15 that the apostles and elders came together in Jerusalem, which church historians sometimes refer to as the first church council, and they made decisions about the status of the Gentiles or the non-Jewish believers in the church and what would be required of them in terms of their separation and some of their behavioral issues. In Galatians, Paul said that he went to see the apostles and the elders to see, the King James says, to see if he had run in vain, or in other words, to make sure he's on the right track. He wanted to check. He wanted to talk to those that had authority to say, hey, am I doing the right thing? Or am I doing all, putting all this effort in a complete wrong direction? When Paul wrote to Timothy, Timothy and Titus, they were under his authority. They were instructed to keep the church on the right course. And they were also told in the areas they had responsibility to ordain elders and pastors in those places as well. And so we see levels, if you like, of structure and authority and people being accountable to others in their lives. Now, 
church government or church authority is very different to civil government authority. And we say thank you, Lord, for that. In that while the idea of human government, the principle is of God, the people in positions of authority and their their political parties are not necessarily concerned with the word of God. They're not really worried about what God says or what God's opinion is. I was at a university recently, I don't know if I've shared this or not, but uh, it was for Cassandra's graduation and as we were waiting for the students to come in, uh, one of the, I can't remember what the man's exact position was, but he, he sort of gave some opening remarks before we started the ceremony properly. And he said to the crowd, he said, it may interest you that many years ago, nearly all tertiary institutions came from a religious foundation and platform. And then he said, but you'll be, he basically was saying you'll be pleased to know that there won't be any reference to that today. And I was like, that here is your problem right there. That's the problem with our tertiary institutions. Not the education, the fact they've taken God out of the picture. Amen. So there has always been, but, but in the church of God, amongst the people of God, the will and the word of God is our ultimate authority. And so the people in the church of God that have authority are required to function and operate based upon the word of God in pursuit of the will of God and in a godly manner. So within the household of faith, unlike in politics, we ought to have confidence that God has ordained the authority in his church and that he does put people in positions. And unlike in politics, those people are God's man or God's woman for that situation. Some scripture to go with this. First Thessalonians chapter 5, starting at verse 12. And we beseech you, we urge you, brethren, to know them which labor among you. That know doesn't mean, oh, yeah, I've met them. How you going? I know you. That means pay attention to them which labor among you and are over you. There's that, we don't like that again, but that's what it says. They're over you in the Lord and they admonish you. They can give you instruction and correction. And to esteem them very highly in love because they're the most amazing people in the world. No, for their work's sake, because of what they do in the kingdom of God. And as a product of that, be at peace among yourselves. First Timothy 5 and 17, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Hebrews 13 and 7 says, Remember them which have the rule over you. That doesn't mean don't forget them. It goes along with the other verse about no. It's like pay attention that have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, follow their example, considering the end of their conversation or considering the direction of their lives. The same chapter in verse 17 says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Sometimes... The King James English has an incredible way of really understating things. When it just says that is unprofitable for you, it makes it sound like it's not really good. If, if somebody has to give an account for my soul or your soul with grief, that's devastating. That we need to understand when it's saying it's unprofitable, it's talking about destruction. Amen. Now I want to be very clear. I believe very, very strongly that we should expect a higher quality of character and behavior from church authority than we do from civil authorities. And I hope at least one person can say amen to that. Bless the Lord. This is biblical. This is from the word of God. There are expectations 
that Paul gave to both Timothy and Titus. There are things in the character and the behavior and the conduct that Paul said that a bishop or a pastor or a deacon or an overseer needed to have. There were things to look for. It wasn't just whoever feels like doing the job today. There were things that God expects. And we need to understand that God holds leaders accountable. Leaders in the kingdom of God answer to God. Now, sometimes we think that's a cop-out because we want them to answer to us. But I promise you it's much more severe to answer to God than it is to answer to man. Amen. We need to remember that God holds leaders accountable. They answer to him. But as people of faith, God holds us accountable for how we answer to them. And we need to remember that balance. Amen. The church should never be a dictatorship. It should never be a place where there is unquestionable authority, where there is no place to ask a question, there is no place to consider things according to the Word of God. Everything must come back to the Word of God. But the idea of spiritual authority is a God concept. And we're not talking about popes. We're not talking about any of that kind of extreme authority, but we're talking about those that God has put in place for our good, for our benefit. Amen. Finally, let's talk about marriage and family authority. I've deliberately left this one for last because in many ways this is the foundational place where authority is experienced and where it's learned. This is the environment where our attitudes and our responses to all other areas of authority are formed, particularly from the perspective of children. It is the home where children will see demonstrated and most likely imitate marriage relationships attitudes towards teachers, towards employers, towards governments, towards pastors. And parents, we shape the attitude of our children toward all forms of authority. It begins in the home. Amen. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. It's a well-known verse. It's also a well-misunderstood verse. It is a principle. This verse is not some foolproof, waterproof, take-it-to-the-bank guarantee that your children will do everything that you have taught them to do. But it is a powerful principle about the impact that the home has on fashioning little people into big people. Amen. Some people have unfortunately, I would even go as far as to say tragically, misunderstood this verse to mean that if you teach your children the right things, if you teach them godly principles and faithfulness, that you have a guarantee that they will never, ever walk away from those things. We have to always remember, and this is an important thing to remember whenever you look at scriptures like this, that in every situation, every single one of us will always, always, and after that always, have a free will to make choices in our lives. Amen. To choose our own paths. And so whenever anybody, no matter how good their intentions are, suggests to you that your actions can guarantee a certain response from another person, they overlook the fact that we all have our own will. Now, our actions certainly influence and have an impact But when you take a perspective that if I will do A, 
that person must do B, you remove that person's power of choice. That's not biblical. Not even God does that. Amen. I'll give you an example. When we pray for a loved one who has walked away from God, we know, and I underline that and emphasize it, we know that God hears our prayers. That prayer is powerful. That God will work on that person's heart. That he will draw them unto himself. That he will convict them of their sins. All of those statements are 100% true and that's why we pray. Because God can. But if you take it a step further and you say that because I am praying, they must come back to God, you remove their will from the picture. And God does not do that. And sadly, people have become incredibly discouraged because they've believed that because they have prayed, another person must do what they have prayed for. It simply isn't true. I want to deliver some people from that this morning. While there is life, we pray. Absolutely. We believe. We know. We trust that God can and that he will. But there is always going to be that person's will. That's why there are warnings in the scripture about do not harden your heart. If, if, if our prayer could overcome anybody's will, they can harden their heart as much as their life. Once, once I've prayed and clocked a hundred hours, they have to do what I've prayed for. But the will is always involved and God softens the heart. God works on the heart, but every individual has to choose to respond or to harden their heart. And unfortunately, and I've been in Pentecost more than 40 years now, unfortunately, people read this verse in Proverbs and they think, they convince themselves that if their child has walked away from God, then it is automatically their fault as a parent and that they are to blame. And that is not the facts. I will say this emphatically. Yes, How we parent matters. There are principles in the word of God we need to do our very best to take hold of and practice as parents. It matters how you raise your kids. It matters how you teach them about authority. But if you take it upon yourself to condemn yourself because your child has made a foolish decision, you will condemn yourself unjustly. God does not condemn. The devil condemns. And as far as I am aware, and I'm fairly confident in this statement, there are only imperfect parents and there are only imperfect children and yet God saves both regardless of your shortcomings. It does not give us a pass to be lousy parents or rebellious children, but it tells us that in spite of us, God can do what God can do. That's why we pray. That's why we call their names before the throne of God. That's why we believe. But do not be sucked into the deception that if I pray this much, they must. That kind of idea comes from Catholicism. And if I will give, if I will donate, if I will do all these things, God will hear my cry. God will always hear your cry. He will always reach for that loved one. But at the end of the day, as the Lord said in the Old Testament, I have set before you life and death. Therefore, choose life. Ultimately, until the Lord comes back, the power of choice is individual. And as somebody said so profoundly, in the decision, in the process of a decision, you are the most powerful person in the universe.
because the devil cannot make you do something and God will not force you. He can, but he will not. And so in the place of choice, you have all the power. And we need to pray for those people that are in that place of choice that they would involve God in that process. That's what our prayers do. So don't think I'm saying we shouldn't pray. I am saying pray and believe. But do not think that you control the outcome. Hallelujah. It's important we understand that. Amen. We need to teach our children to respect, to honor and obey authority of every flavor and even when it's imperfect. If you raise your children to excuse themselves from authority every time authority has a shortfall, you're creating a monster. And you need to model it for your children. You need to demonstrate it. I've known people that say they teach their children to honor the pastor of their church, but their words and their actions actually model the opposite. And they create heartache for their children. They put stumbling blocks in their paths when their children grow and try to live for God because those children will absorb the same critical spirit and have the same struggle with the authority of leaders long after we are gone. Let your legacy be one where you teach children to honor leaders, to honor and respect and submit themselves even when they're imperfect because the simple hard facts are all authority except him is imperfect. Every politician, every school teacher, every parent, every pastor, every policeman, every authority in our life is imperfect. And if you want to find fault, it's there. doesn't normally take too much to dig it up, to be honest. But the principle of the Word of God is until it comes against God's Word, we submit ourselves. Not because they're awesome, but because He is. And because we trust Him. And if we can put that into our kids, we will save them a world of heartache and a world of pain. If you're involved in ministry and leadership, you need to take extra effort with your children. Pastors' kids, preachers' kids see a lot more human ugliness than everybody else in the church does sometimes. But we have to teach them, love God, honor God. Honor the man of God. Honor the authorities in your life. Do what your teacher says. I don't care if your teacher's a terrible teacher. Do it just because they're your teacher. And watch God take care of you. Amen. There's a whole bunch of scriptures I could use to speak to us about the model of authority in the home, but these are just a couple of examples. Colossians 3, 18 to 20. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Don't complain about your responsibilities, men. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Ephesians 6, 1 and 2. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. And we're not going to teach you a lot about that today. But the picture that Scripture presents to us in a brief statement is one where a husband or a father provides for protects and leads his family, his wife and his children in the things of God. It speaks to us of a wife and a mother who submits to his leadership, confident in his care for her and her children. It speaks of children who obey their parents and enjoy the blessings and provision of godly parents. This is the atmosphere. This is the foundation where all understanding of authority, good or bad, comes from. 
It's from in our homes that the understanding of authority flows into our church, flows into schools, flows into society, flows into employment, and then eventually repeats again in the next generation. It begins in our homes. Amen. And so in our natural carnal state, it can seem as though our lives are filled with nothing but authority. Everybody telling us what to do. If it's not the government, it's your boss. If it's not the boss, it's your pastor. If it's not your pastor, it's your husband. And for children, it's your parents. It just seems like everybody's trying to tell me what to do. And failure to understand all of this and its purpose can seem like authority is a giant policeman in our lives, always trying to order us around and arrest us when we do the wrong thing. And power, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, power and authority in human hands will always be at risk of being misused and abused. Anything in human hands is at risk of being misused and abused. The solution is not to do away with authority, but the solution is to endeavor to approach it from the correct point of view. And when we actually get it right in our understanding, we realize that there is a blessing in authority. Because authority is like an umbrella. It's like a covering. It protects, it provides. And each authority in our lives has a different reach or a different influence. And when you place yourself under authority, because ultimately it's a personal decision, I mean, you push against it long enough, you'll go to jail and lose all your free will. But when you place yourself under authority, you are eligible for the benefits of being under that covering. Not only that, but then that authority becomes accountable for you. You step out from under that authority, you lose the benefits, and you often gain the consequences. Very quickly, God's authority. The most obvious benefits of being under God's authority and submission and obedience to him brings the blessings of salvation, his love, his peace, his joy, and the benefits that there are. There is no life anywhere that is like the life of a child of God. There is no life that can... Every, I look at society and I think there's nothing out there that even draws me. That doesn't mean I'm not tempted to satisfy my own sinful flesh, but there's nothing in this world that thinks, man, I want to walk away from church. There is no life that compares to being a child of God. Amen. Without that covering, if you step out from under that, you have sin, you have all the heartaches that come with sin. If you follow that path, you end up with the loss of salvation and an eternity in hell. That's what happens when you step out from under God's authority. Government authority, especially in this country, the benefits are many. The structure of our legal system, again, not perfect. Government provided education, government provided health care, a police force, which you know people complain about, but when you have an emergency, there's a reason it's only a three number, you know, you've got to get there quickly. Amen. All different various forms of government support, even the road rules are beneficial. You step out of that covering. You start ignoring and disobeying government authority. There are consequences for breaking the law. If you decide you shouldn't pay tax, you may find you're not eligible for certain public services. If you've got criminal activity going on in your home, you're probably less likely to call the police when you need them. You've got a drug lab set up in the back bedroom and all of a sudden somebody collapses. What do we do? You put yourself in a compromised situation because you're breaking the law, but you also need the benefits. Unfortunately, at that point, it's too late. We've got to stay under 
the benefits of that authority. Romans 13 and 3 says that rulers are not a terror to good works, if it's happening God's way, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? You should be concerned about the consequences. But if you do that which is good, you'll have praise of the same. In this country, if you pay your taxes, you may get unemployment benefits. You got a young family, you may get family tax benefits. Now, I, I know that all, you know some people get too much and some people don't get enough. I, I've heard all the conversations. But the system's there. Plenty of places where that system doesn't exist. Amen. Church authority. When we place ourselves under the authority that God ordains in the church, we are acknowledging that God puts them there and that we will benefit from what God uses them to do in our lives. When we view the preaching, teaching, counsel, guidance, correction, direction as being from God, God will use those things to help us to grow in him. And as long as we are under that covering, those people in those positions are accountable for us to God. You step out from under that covering, and then as we read in Hebrews 13, there's an account they give to God that is with grief and not with joy. Just about done. Marriage and family authority. Scripture makes it very clear. Gentlemen, particularly it addresses us, but I'm pretty sure it goes both ways. But our relationship with our spouse impacts our relationship with God. First Peter tells us that how husbands treat their wives impacts how God hears their prayers. The word the Bible uses is hindered. It says, be good to your wife, otherwise your prayers aren't hindered. So, gentlemen, if you're not being a, a godly husband and you're treating your wife unfairly, God's giving you the silent treatment. He's not picking up the phone. So think about how you respond in your families and your responsibilities. And ladies, I'm pretty sure the reverse is also true for you. You don't get a pass to be miserable to your husbands and expect God to still hear your prayers as well. The book of Proverbs has many verses. Speak of the consequences of children not honoring their parents or ignoring their instructions. But one example is Proverbs chapter 30, verses 11 through to 13. It says, There is a generation that curses their father and doesn't bless their mother. There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes, and yet they're not washed from their filthiness. There is a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. That basically means they're full of their own importance. Ultimately, authority is for our benefit, not for our suffering. Now, we know when it's misused that sometimes there is suffering, but ultimately, authority is for our benefit, it's provided by the grace of God to help us live the way that he wants us to. Under its covering, there is provision and there is protection. And when you understand it from a biblical perspective, we realize that God gives us these things to help us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Let's stand together this morning.